Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agricultural literacy discussion. This podcast is brought to you by New York Agriculture in the Classroom and the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Most episodes of this podcast will feature individuals from one specific state, either Iowa or New York. But today's episode is special. We will be featuring an Iowa farmer and a New York teacher. Skylar Bartle is a grain farmer here in Iowa. We're going to visit with Skylar and learn all about his family operation, his role in it, and what he thinks the future of farming looks like here in Iowa. My name is Skylar Bartle and I am a farmer. I grow corn and soybeans, and I also help raise some hogs in two hog barns, and I actually have a couple cattle, and a couple for me is three. Hopefully this spring will be five. For other people, it's a lot more than that. So our operation is uh, myself. I just came back and started in 2017. Uh, My grandpa, Roy, and then my dad, Tim, and my uncle, Pete, and the four of us make up our, our operation. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that family operation. Is it a true family operation? Are you incorporated? What's kind of the structure look like? The way that we're structured actually is the four of us farm together, but we farm 2,300 acres total, which that sounds like a lot because it kind of is a lot. But my wife and I own 90 acres and rent 200 more. So we're a part of that piece of the puzzle. And the same goes with my grandpa, my dad, and my uncle. So we all have different land ownerships, and we also rent from different landlords, too. So we farm together separately is kind of how I like to say it. We share equipment, we share labor, and that's kind of how we do it. We do have three century farms that we farm. Uh, That just means that the same family has been farming the same ground for 100 years or more. One on my Grandpa Roy's side, so... I'm actually the sixth generation to farm on that farm. Um, Then on my dad's mom, her side is the century farm. And then my wife, we farm her family's ground and that's a century farm as well. So we're lucky enough to really tie that family aspect into it and farm three. None of your family were homesteaders necessarily. Correct, yeah. We were the Bartle farm, the home place that we call it. Uh, We were the second owners of it. And actually, it's funny, they always talk, the neighbors came up and said, hey, we're so happy to have you as neighbors, but you bought a worn out farm. And it's because the way they used to farm back then is they only could farm the hilltops because there was no tile yet. So that's um, obviously not 100% accurate anymore, and the farm definitely was not worn out. To this day, is one of our best pieces of ground, and that's why we do everything we can to keep the dirt where it is, and that helps everything along the way, whether you're talking water quality or conservation or anything else. Yeah, give us a mental picture of what this what the farm looks like. You said farm the hilltops, is it rolling? What does the landscape look like? We are actually in a very flat part of Iowa in Greene County. My grandpa Roy likes to call it flat, black, and beautiful. We do have some hills, but we don't have any terraces or anything like that. The hills that I'm talking about, you can just not see over the other side type of deal. So it is, it is very flat. 
<laughs> okay. All right. So we're talking here today about corn. Why does flat, black, and beautiful make for good corn ground? All right. Well, the flat helps us a lot because oftentimes the hilltops um, have been worn down by erosion, kind of like what I was talking about with saying that it was worn out. The way that we used to farm 100 years ago, I mean, we'd plow it. That's very extreme tillage. And for what it does, it works well, but it doesn't really have the future in mind is the way that I would explain it. It makes the ground very susceptible to wind erosion, uh, water erosion, where pretty much the black, the dirt kind of falls off the hilltops and goes into the lower places. Or if there's a way for it to get into the water, it'll find a way and it'll wash downstream, which nobody wants. It, we sure don't want it as farmers because that's that's our biggest asset is our land, and we want to do everything that we can to keep it where it's at. Why do you think Iowa is so good for growing corn? Iowa is very good at growing corn, partially because we have some of the most fertile ground in the world. Iowa's ground is very productive, and a lot of that is because it has a lot of natural nitrogen in the first uh, six inches. I think on average, Iowa has about a literal ton, so 2,000 pounds of nitrogen that's readily available in the soil naturally. And that's why we can grow some really great corn. And that rich black color of the soil is largely organic matter, which mm, yes. then needs nutrients and, and things like that. So what does corn need to grow? How is the Iowa soil, the Iowa climate, how is it providing those ideal conditions? Like what we talked about, black soil often means very fertile soil, has high in organic matter. When I say organic matter, I mean, think about like the plants and even in animals that came before it have died and decomposed, but the way that Iowa's climate is, it doesn't just do it rapidly because we have winter and kind of put stuff on ice, so to speak. So it slows it down and helps it make it more readily available to the crops. The nitrogen that I talked about is a very vital point in corn production. It's not the only piece of the puzzle. There are many pieces we put on stuff like potassium and uh, what we call potash to help feed the crop. The best fertilizer you can use is uh, manure. And we actually have two hog barns that just come in at just under 5,000 head, which we're able to use the manure from that to be able to put on the farm ground directly into strips and we plant directly into those strips to try to make the nutrients available from that manure most readily and easily available to the corn. You said 5,000 head, that's number of animals at one time? Yes. Okay, so, so how many hogs are you raising per year? Probably around 1,200 per year. When we get the pigs in, they're approximately 40 pounds, which means that we are a feed-to-finish operation. That means that they've come from the nursery and they have been weaned off the sow or the, the mom pig. So when we get them, we bring them in around 40 pounds, give or take, and we feed them and take care of them until they're about market weight which is anywhere from 250 to 300 pounds. I think the ideal weight is that 270 to 80 range. This last group that went out though, I think the average was 298. You said that you're spreading the manure in the strips. Explain to us what that looks like. What does that mean from uh, putting seed in the ground, putting manure on and managing that crop? If we're getting ready for a corn crop, the first thing that we do, we are a no-till strip-till operation. Uh, pretty much what that means is we try to disturb the soil as little as possible. So in preparation for corn, when we put manure on, the manure is pumped out of the pit, which is beneath the barn, into tanks. And then the tanks will then drive through the field, preferably in straight lines, 
and apply the manure into the ground and then cover it up. So we bury it right away. Following that, we will then actually go out with our strip till and provide the other nutrients that the manure might be lacking a little bit of. After we do that, mid-April, May timeframe, we'll go in and plant our corn. To be able to get the straight rows that we're, we're talking about here, we actually used a guidance system. So we set it up so the tractor will drive within, I think, two inches of a straight line forever if you would let it. In a nutshell, that's what we do to be able to plant a corn crop. Maybe down the road you're going to do a little bit more diversification of your farm operation? Yeah, I'm kind of the driving force right now in our operation. My grandpa's in his 70s, my dad and uncle are in his 50s, and I'm in, I guess now I'm in late 20s. And uh, I'm doing everything that I can to try to keep our operation diversified. So if the corn market's down, maybe hogs will be up. Or if maybe if there's a drought, well, that's okay. We have some cattle that we can bring to market. So just doing what I can to stay profitable and we can stay around. Very cool. What's your background then? What was your trajectory to get to where you are now? I was lucky enough to be born on a farm, been working on it my entire life. All through high school and especially when I got my license, that was when I could truly work on the farm and get paid, I guess. (laughs) Before that, I helped out any time that I could or when I was needed. We had some hog barns that uh, that was my responsibility in the summer. So I took care of both buildings in the summer and really enjoyed that. And I've always enjoyed working outside and the family aspect of it is pretty big too. I really love that I see my dad, my grandpa, and my uncle six days a week. And for me, that's, that's good, and I, I really enjoy that. But after high school, I wasn't sure if there was going to be room for me on the farm. Something I remember is that a farm is a business. If your family owns a local gas station and there's already six people working there, it's hard to find room for the seventh person to be able to work there and to make a living and to raise a family. So after high school, I went to college. I actually have two degrees, uh, one in business management with a marketing emphasis, and another in communication studies. So I didn't think I was going to be able to farm right away. Unfortunately, when I was in college, my wife's dad was actually killed in a farm accident. So what that kind of meant was after he had unfortunately passed away, there were 300 acres of my wife's family farm that needed somebody to farm. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I were able to move back home and farm, which we wanted to do. We just you, you don't get to choose the way that it happens, I guess, and neither one of us wanted it to happen this way, but honestly, that's that's what opened the door to be able to do what I do today. You hit on a couple of things that are so cool that farming is a business, Yes, but it's a family-run business, and yes. so you've got those family dynamics in there that when tragedy strikes, it's devastating for the family, but then also the business, and you mm-hmm. have to figure out how to manage that. Yes. That's, that can be very difficult. My father-in-law passed away in the spring, so we still had all the planting to do. And it's difficult because you want to grieve. It's not like you can't take time to grieve, but you got to be working when you grieve kind of deal. And luckily, uh, he, he had great friends who helped him get the crop in and great friends that helped him get the crop out after he passed away. But it was very stressful. I went up and I tried to work. And to that point, I hadn't really done anything by myself. I mean, it was it's just difficult because like you said, it's it's a family business, but it's still a business. So when tragedy strikes, you if you got hogs, you still got to take care of the hogs because it's they are your responsibility. 
And then on the flip side of that, because it is a family business, you can really just pour your heart and soul into it, and it's yours. <laughs> that's right? that's exactly right. Before I actually came back to farm, I worked at Smithfield Foods as a production uh, supervisor and then as a parts manager at a tractor dealership. And I always remembered I hated working Saturdays when I worked there. But now that I farm, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm working for myself. If I'm not doing something specific on my farm or my ground, I'm doing something to help my grandpa or my dad or my uncle. And I guess that's where that comes into play. I I don't mind the long hours because I'm working for myself and for my family. I'm bettering myself and my family. You did something really cool, not expecting to go back to the farm. You went off and got a couple of degrees, Mm -hmm. but then you kind of always had your end sight on the farm, right? Yeah, that's correct. I went to Central College in Pella. They did not have an ag business program, but to a certain degree, that was okay. When it comes down to it, farming is a business. So having a business degree, I think, was very valuable. I use stuff I learned in college on the farm all the time. It's not the agronomy aspect of it, but it's the numbers. I mean... You have to figure out how much it's going to cost you to grow a crop. So how much is fertilizer going to cost you? How much is seed? So I got to manage what I can, the best that I can, and just hope everything kind of turns out for the best with the decisions that I've made. And that definitely seems to be more of a trend. Would you consider your generation of farmers to have more degrees and more professional training in a variety of ways? Is that kind of something you see in the industry? Yeah, for the most part. Most of the other guys around my age that farm uh, did go to college. A lot of them did go to an ag-based college specifically. The only reason why I did not is because I didn't know when I'd get back to the farm. So I fully intended to have a nine to five job for five to 10 years until there was space for me on the farm. The corn that I grow is not popcorn and it's not sweet corn. The corn that I grow is uh, used in animal feed. And actually I haul most of my grain when I sell it to ethanol plants. So it's used to help fuel our cars and the byproduct of ethanol is dried distillers grains, which is actually essentially feed. So I feel that what I'm doing is helping to benefit everybody in a positive way. And I think that's something that most people don't understand, that only 1% of the corn that we grow is sweet corn. Correct. Yes. Yeah. The other 99% is what you grow, field corn. Yes, field corn. So what's the difference between sweet corn and field corn? Really, the biggest difference that I would say is uh, it's the sugar content. When you bite into some really good Iowa sweet corn, it's sweet. It tastes good. It's juicy. If you buy it into field corn, It's not nearly as sweet. And then the other thing to mention, too, is that when you eat sweet corn, I would say that the corn is not fully matured. When you do field corn, it's dry when you harvest it. So So typically, we're not going to bite into an ear of field corn. Correct. It's going to be dry in the field before we even consider harvesting. Correct. Yeah, I can't even tell you what the moisture content on sweet corn would be. But when we pick our corn, we're hoping really for that 17, 18% moisture. And pretty much what that means is if you take all the kernels off and put them in a five-gallon bucket and shake it around, it'll rattle and make a lot of sound. If you put wet corn into a bucket like that, it's, it doesn't rattle. And, of course, when it gets dry, it gets harder as well. Obviously, when you bite into sweet corn, it's not hard. So that field corn is going into, you said, ethanol, DDGs, the dried distiller's grain. It's going into animal feed. But then it's going into a lot of other industrial products. Maybe not your corn specifically, but the corn that we grow here in Iowa. Industrial products, food products, Mm -hmm. your tortilla chips, all of your starch-based products. Can you give us any sense of what all that corn is being used for? 
that that's actually really tough. It <laughs> it goes into a lot of things. You can take a lot of things off the shelf in the grocery store if you look at the ingredient list. Cornstarch is a big one that goes into stuff. It's in a lot of stuff. If you look around, it will blow your mind about how much corn is an ingredient in. Depending on who you ask, they say thousands of your grocery store products have corn in them. Yes. Very early on, you mentioned tiles. I want to jump back to that because what is a tile and how does it help you as a farmer? Sure. Okay. Essentially, what field tile is and what I'm talking about is more or less an underground pipe that has a bunch of little holes in it. So it's buried underneath the ground. So when there's excess moisture in the soil or the soil saturated, what the field tile does, since there's a bunch of little holes in that pipe, it allows the water to kind of seep into the pipe. And then the pipe is then streamlined into an outlet. It's actually very well organized and really it's its its own type of infrastructure that allows Iowa farmers to be able to grow a crop. My farm actually, my wife's family farm, is a very wet farm. So we have a lot of ponds. Corn does not grow well in ponds. If the dirt is always wet, it doesn't grow very good either. We call that being soured out. So we don't want to take away all the moisture, but we want the excess moisture to find a home somewhere else. So you're telling me in all of these Iowa cornfields, there's basically plumbing? There's essentially plumbing. Yes, that is a great way to think about it. Okay. And it's very extreme plumbing, <laughs> like five feet under the ground. And there's tiles that as much as 24 inches in diameter. So we're putting the tile lines, the plumbing, down below the root zone, and we want to remove the lower water. We're not taking surface water away, correct? Yes, that, that's exactly right, because corn and all other plants got to drink something. We just want to make sure that the roots aren't sitting in essentially a puddle. Mm-hmm. Earlier on, you also mentioned GPS in your tractors. Tell us a little bit more about the technology that you use on your farm. I, I just got to share this story too. Before my great grandpa died, he wrote some changes that he had seen when he had farmed. When he started farming, they still used horses. And when he was done, we were using GPS. And he always liked to say when his great granddaddy, the way that he said it, started farming, he harvested uh, wheat with a cradle, which is a sickle the same way they did 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So just in that short amount of time from when my great grandpa started farm using horses and now we're using GPS. And that's, it's wild and crazy how fast we have moved forward and have been innovators and have adopted new technology. The technology we use on our farm, we use GPS, like I said. What that does is that helps us be as efficient as possible. We're not driving over the same place twice by mistake, so we're saving fuel, we're saving money with that. It also makes it so we can put nutrients directly where we know we're going to plant it. So when I go ahead and put a fertilizer down, I put it in strips. Normally, we try to do that in the fall. Then in the next spring, I will be able to drive more or less the exact same path and put that seed directly where I want it. So uh, GPS allows us to do all of those things, makes us more efficient in that sense. Other technology that we use, we actually have a drone, which helps us do scouting. When you are scouting a cornfield, you're looking for problems that you'll have to address or that you want to know about. What that does for us is it helps us know pretty much how the health of the crop is doing. I mentioned before stuff that you spray on the field. One of them is called an insecticide. We don't want to spray those. We don't spray those automatically. There has to be a reason. And the reason for that 
is they're expensive and it's overall it's just difficult to deal with we don't want to this year we ended up having to do some of that so the drone helps us to scout the fields to know what's going on so we can best manage it some more technology that we use is we actually do soil testing which is when we go out into a field and take little samples of soil throughout the field normally in a grid and then we will bring that in or have somebody bring that into a lab to look and say what is in the soil so one of the things that we look for is like nitrogen content in the soil well if we find out that this area in the field actually had hey this actually has enough nitrogen to grow a corn crop next year well then we don't have to put nitrogen there so that helps about 30 different ways i think we save money not having to spend money on fertilizer it's better not to have excess nutrients of any kind on the field if we can avoid it and we're getting better and better about that and pinpointing exactly where it's needed that's so cool to think about how the technology has advanced over uh, like you said a very very short amount of time yes maybe what would help us understand a little bit more is the machinery that you're using to do all of this walk us through what each of those kind of looks like. Sure. I guess it's kind of easier to start thinking of it at the beginning of the year before you plant something. In preparation to plant something, we do something called strip till, and that's when we put our fertilizer on. Then after we strip till and get those strips ready, then we can go through with the planter. And we can use the same tractor. So the tractor is pulling the implement or the machine. You don't do those two things at the same time. But after you pull the planter through the field, the next thing that we will end up doing is spraying. And we have a sprayer. It's kind of a funny looking machine. It kind of looks like it's up on stilts. You gotta remember corn can grow to be like 12 feet tall and this can drive through a cornfield and not knock over any corn. So how tall are the tires? About six feet tall approximately that's just the tires and then like I said they're more or less up on stilts so what we use that for is we will spray for weeds so we might go through a cornfield two or three times and then when we harvest we have a combine which has a special head it's it's called a head but it's what is in front of the combine and it looks like a bunch of huge fingers that go and they poke directly in between the rows and then it helps pull the corn into the machine Kind of like running a comb through your hair. This yeah, that's this a great way to think. Header of it, yes. on the corn combine runs its tines through the corn, mm-hmm. strips the corn down, pulls the cob off, takes the kernels off, and gets all of the kernels into the bin. That's yes, that's exactly right. All right. You said GPS. I'm assuming there's GPS on all three pieces of machinery and they're able to talk to each other? Yeah, so that's the other really neat thing that I guess I haven't even touched on yet is by using GPS, we essentially make a digital footprint of where we were and what we did. So on my phone right now, I could pull up an app and I could see what variety of corn was planted where on what date and then be able to go through and see what it was sprayed with and it creates a yield map and what a yield map is is it shows how much or how little of a crop was grown in a particular spot and that can tell us loads of information for from the management side to know what can we do to make this better or why was there a problem here or why was this so good here so yeah all the equipment has gps and that helps us to keep track of that and also that helps to prevent uh, any overlap um I think of the sprayer specifically. The sprayer is about 90 feet wide when it's unfolded. So it has these big arms out in front of it. So if you think, if you're driving something that's 90 feet wide and you're in the middle, 
how do you know that when you turn around to do your next pass, you're not overlapping what you already did or you're missing a a 20-foot space? The GPS has a little monitor on the screen, which has a little icon of where you're at, and it actually shows you so you can be exact and you can know exactly where you're at so you're not wasting anything. Why do you think it's important for people to understand what you do? Why is it important for students to understand about farming, about agriculture? Tell us your thoughts. Sure. I I think it's very important. Like I said, we farm on a century farm. And 100 years ago, there was a lot more people who lived and worked on the farm. As we've gotten further and further away from that, now we have people who are two or three generations removed from the farm. And that in itself, there's, there's no problem with it. That's not bad. But what that means is that they don't always understand what it is that we're doing. I can tell you that we are doing everything that we can to be the best that we can. A lot of times we run into kind of some environmental issues and water quality issues that often agriculture gets the finger pointed at. And a lot of it is just a misunderstanding, not knowing what it is that we're doing. Well, and you alluded to the technology that has happened in the last... 10 years, last 50 years, we're getting better and better at farming and making those better decisions in protecting the environment. Yes. The way that we farm today is better for the environment. It's better for water quality. We're producing more to be able to feed more people on less land with less people. Less people farming, that is. As an industry, I think that we are doing a very good job. We have a lot that we can and should improve on. But all in all, I think that we are doing well and that we don't always do a good job about conveying and sharing with people just what it is that we're doing. So you seem to enjoy your job, but what is the worst part of it? I really do enjoy my job, but the honestly, the worst part of it for me is harvest season. I love harvest, but if you go into a field that maybe you thought was going to be 200 bushel an acre and it's like 130 bushel an acre, that, that's, that's pretty horrible. Um, it's a huge disappointment. You've been working and caring for this crop all year, and you are dependent on it to pay the bills. And when it's a shortfall, gets a, a bad knot in your stomach, besides the disappointment, then all of a sudden you're sitting in the combine thinking, how are you going to deal with this financial shortcoming? Because once again, farming is a business. That is probably the absolute worst. Normally it goes back to is mother nature always wins. If it was too hot, if it was too dry, if it was too wet, I can't control it, but I take everything that she gives me. So what's the best part of your job? What's, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Honestly, the best part of my job, I really love actively farming, but for me, I love to be able to farm with my family. I know so much more about farming, how we do it today, but also how they did it more or less 100 years ago. My grandpa is just a huge wealth of information because he's seen it, he's done it, and I think it's really important to know where you came from to know where you're going. In those family relationships and connections, I'm really hoping that I can pass down to both of my sons if they choose to come back and farm. For me, that's the best part. Amy Gozier is a first grade teacher in the Balsam Spa Central School District in Saratoga County, located in upstate New York. Amy is a 2018 winner of the USDA Excellence in Teaching About Agriculture Award, awarded at the National Agriculture in the Classroom Conference in Portland, Maine. She won on the merits of her creative classroom connections to corn and her regular Skype calls with an Iowa corn farmer. 
Let's listen together as Amy shares about her deep dive into expanding her students' minds about corn and the world outside of their community. Well, Amy, thanks so much for being with us on Outstanding in Their Field. First, I'm going to ask you just a little bit about your school community. What does your school community look like and what do you teach? Boston Spa is in Saratoga County, and so we're just a suburban district. So there is agriculture around here, but it's not as prevalent as it would be maybe upstate New York. Mostly it's just what you would see in a typical suburban area. Some agriculture, but certainly more spread out than you would think. Yeah, Saratoga County is such an interesting place because you have the racetrack here, you have a lot of high society coming into Saratoga, but you also have a working class of people who help serve those service industries and kind of an agricultural community and everything in between. Yeah, absolutely. This is a diverse area, so we have some of both, and it's kind of what makes it nice. So what sparked your desire to teach? I just have always really liked teaching and helping others. So from a very young age, even in second grade, that's I think really when I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I just really always either wanted to, you know, work with kids and teach or work with animals. I ended up really leaning towards teaching and wanting to help others and I really like working with kids. So that's that's really it. I just I just really like helping and watching kids learn. I think it's so funny, even as I was driving here today, and I'm always excited when I get to walk into a school, and it's, I just think it's funny how life evolves and comes full circle. So I remember myself when I was young, of course, I always wanted to play school, and I always wanted to be the teacher. (laughs) So those things that we love when we're young really come back, and, and we can live those dreams as an adult. We're really lucky to be able to have those opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. You always hope that your passions can come through, that you get to live the dream, what you really wanted to do. So yeah, it's good. So Amy, we really think that you are a truly inspiring educator. The corn unit that you developed with your students was deep and impactful. Your students had a chance to connect with a real farmer. You led them through coursework that was aligned to Common Core and Next Generation Science Standards. It was relevant, it was engaging. And then they also got to use some critical thinking skills to come up with solutions for the farmer that you paired with. But you started your unit with the essential question of where does food come from? Why was that question so important for you, for your students to answer? Sure. Well, I think, you know, it's really important for kids to understand where their food comes from because the natural answer when you're talking to a first grader and you ask them where does your food come from and they're going to tell you the store and that's just a very typical response and an honest response from them. They really just don't know. It kind of comes back to us being in the suburban area where um, they don't see often where food comes from or how it's being produced. So it's it's really important for them to make those connections and those deeper understandings so that when they take that bite of their cereal or drink that glass of milk that they have an understanding of where it's coming from that's not just the store shelf and that there's a lot of work that goes into that food coming to them. So it's really just about teaching them the importance of agriculture in their own lives and as well as you know, the lives of everyone around them. And you grew up having agriculture around you or surrounding you. So why was that so important? How did that shape you to want to talk about agriculture in your teaching? 
it taught me an appreciation for agriculture and I just really always enjoyed it. I didn't grow up on a farm myself, but a lot of my friends grew up on farms and so I would spend time at their farms and it was a lot of fun. I just really enjoyed it a lot. And I think, again, being able to grow up in that area and see what goes into it and how how much work it is, it really does foster an appreciation. So you want to show kids the same kind of appreciation Yeah, it's so few and far between now, even in an upstate school like Balsam Spa or Milton Terrace, that your students have a peer in their classroom who has a farm background or they go over for sleepovers or birthday parties. Those natural connections of food and agriculture don't exist. I think some of my favorite memories were spending time on my friend's farm and trying to to break calves (laughs) for the fair or whatever it may be, that those connections and experiences just aren't there and is lucky to have those in a natural way. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just not something that they see all the time. They make connections with stories or books or, you know, see things on TV, but they don't get a chance really that much to see it firsthand. So it's exciting when you can show them something that they didn't know before. So you really based this entire project around your relationship with Bob Casterton. Yes. And as you affectionately call him, Farmer Bob. <laughs> uh, so how did your relationship with Farmer Bob start? So I met Farmer Bob through my neighbor. They live next door to me. Uh, they invited us over for dinner one summer evening, and Farmer Bob was up visiting his daughter. And he just asked me in conversation, you know, do you do agriculture in the classroom at your school? And my answer was, well, yes, I do. I do agriculture, but I didn't really call it that. He asked me if I would be interested in Skyping from his farm. And I just really knew that that connection would be so exciting for the kids, that that would be something they would really, really get into and and be excited about and engaged with. So we moved from there. Once we knew that the the option was there, then we figured out how how to put it all together and, and make it something meaningful and exciting for the kids. Now, a lot of your projects centered around technology, whether it was a farm chat through Skype with Farmer Bob or you use Twitter pretty regularly in your day-to-day school life. So why did technology play such a big role and what technology did you use? Well, technology is the world we live in right now. So kids really are enthralled with technology. They understand technology. They use more technology now than we ever did as kids. So it's just something that they get. So anytime that you can bring technology into something to make it more meaningful to them, it's always going to bring an advantage. Obviously, I use Skyping technology, but I used the Twitter to help the community connection and have mom and dad be able to see at home kind of what we were doing. We take pictures and tweet that out. So the parents had some ideas when their kids were coming home and talking about it, and they did a lot. <laughs> they would talk to their parents, and then their parents were seeing sort of firsthand, you know, what we were doing in the classroom. You know, when we Skyped with Farmer Bob, he taught them all of the technology that was involved with the combine and the, the great big screen that is computerized and how the combine can even autopilot. It's just really highly interesting for kids and engaging for them. So anytime you can really incorporate technology into something, it really helps it really helps them I love that it's like a ripple effect also because you're educating your students here the parents are seeing photos and the students are talking about what they did that day with corn and 
while parents, they, they're in a whole nother realm. And so they're seeing things on social media about food and agriculture and taking it maybe as truth or not as truth. You get to kind of teach on so many different levels with students reinforcing the factual points that they're bringing home to maybe change parents' minds or enlighten them to something they hadn't thought about before with the way our agriculture systems work. It's just a really a way to keep them connected and just to show them the interest with the kids and it's really exciting and because of that I had so many conferences with parents and it just came up so often how excited their kids were to be learning about corn and to be Skyping from a farm and how you know eventually they actually got to meet Farmer Bob because he came in and was a mystery reader for our class and that was just so exciting and the parents were really happy that their kids were learning this important stuff and making those connections with agriculture and just that they were having a meaningful experience that was exciting for them. Now, when we were going through the judging process of looking at all of our Teacher of the Year applicants when you were in that pool, it was just amazing for us to see how many different ways you integrated corn into the curriculum. <laughs> it wasn't just one <laughs> one experiment or no. one, one moment. Um, it was so deep and it connecting every single subject area. Yeah. Uh, and it was really amazing. Can you talk about some of the experiences and corn exploration that your students participated in? Yeah, I mean, it was fun. It was, it's kind of like what you said before, the rippling effect. It was a snowball effect, and really one thing would affect another, and it would lead us in another direction. And so I really just let their discovery and their natural questions lead us in different directions. I mean, we started out early on coming up with that topic and talking about food and where our food comes from, but then we researched corn. So we read a lot of books and did a lot of research, KWL charts and stuff like that to really get them understanding what corn is. And even even the facts that they learned about corn, they found very interesting, which was a lot of fun because they thought they were just learning about corn, <laughs> but they never realized how much there was to um, to actually growing corn. So it got them really excited. You know, I brought corn stalks into the classroom so they could see firsthand what corn stalks looked like and what the ears of corn, and we taught them all the parts of it. So they had a good handle on corn itself before we really moved into to other areas. But I used corn to teach writing. We did several process writing pieces with corn. We did art projects with corn where we, you know, made combines and then we wrote about them. We did a lot of science. We put different environments for corn cobs to sprout in to to see which one would be best. So we isolated different variables and they got to see which one was going to actually sprout or which environment would be best. Those are some of my favorite photos that you sent to us. So can you talk about those different environments and what they saw? Yeah, so we picked three different containers and we put one corn cob in just some sand, dry sand. One corn cob was in dry soil and the other corn cob was in water. And so I started out by asking them, which environment do you think is going to help them grow? Which one will they sprout in? And the kids all want to say, it's going to grow in the dirt. But they don't realize the importance of water. So, of course, the soil doesn't produce anything, neither does the sand, which most kids know it's not going to grow in the sand. But they were surprised when that corn cubs really started to grow in the water and it it is really fascinating how it grows and what it looks like as it's growing. Even Um, taking the step back 
for them to realize that those kernels that we eat or that animals eat are seeds themselves. Yeah. That that's the first piece that you can grow more mm-hmm. corn from those kernels that we even consume. Absolutely. And then as the corn was growing, eventually, because yes, it sprouted and it did great when it first sprouted, but once it got to about a foot high or so, they all started to die. And we talked about how some of the kernels fell off the cob and they were just immersed in water and they also died. So the kids understood that if they got too much water, they would die. And because they were so crowded, that also caused them to die. So they really learned that they need the right conditions to grow, the right growing conditions, which we talked about how that's something a farmer really has to understand and get good at so that they can produce on their farm. And so talk to them about some of the hardships that farmers face in weather and different things like that. The whole unit led us to lots of different things. When we Skyped with Bob, he would talk to them about how some of his corn ends up as ethanol, gets turned into ethanol. So that led us in the discovery of renewable and non-renewable resources and understanding the importance of having renewable resources in our lives and what they what it really leads to and also through talking to Bob we asked him what some of his problems were some of the challenges that he faces as a farmer and he told them that one of the problems that he faces is weeds in his fields and so that naturally drew us into this stem project where they had to design some kind of invention to help Farmer Bob solve his weed problem, and that was a huge project in itself. I did the meat, you know, I taught them about corn and all of that kind of stuff, and then I just kind of let it lead us into different areas of discovery. But it was incredibly meaningful to them. When you are doing these types of projects where it's in-depth and you're connecting all of your core curriculum areas, they get a chance to do ELA and writing thank you notes. They get a chance to do their math and science and, and understand agricultural geography in a way as to what we're growing here in New York and growing conditions in Iowa, hitting all those areas. When you bring in these hands-on elements of food and agriculture in your curriculum, how do your students respond? It's just excitement. As I said before, they're very curious and they really want to know about the world around them and they want to understand. Anything that you can tell them about plants or animals will always have their attention. So it's just really answering and meeting their own natural and innate curiosity. So great that you can fill that for them and bring that natural world and agriculture and food into your classroom in that way. And what's next for you, Amy? I know you've had some changes in your curriculum and I know you hope to come back to agriculture. Do you think there's a future with you and Farmer Bob? (laughs) Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, this year we're taking a little bit of a break from the Skyping with Farmer Bob as we're learning our new curriculum. But even there, I always find time and ways to talk about something you know even in the books that we're reading now you can always tie literature to agriculture even though I haven't been able to do the extensive things I've done in the past we still definitely talk about agricultural topics and the importance of where that comes from but eventually I'm hoping that maybe next year we'll be able to find time where we can squeeze that back in and meet back up with Farmer Bob or if not Farmer Bob someone else who's also excited about agriculture. So would you have any advice for teachers out there listening or a community member who's involved in agriculture or just people interested in agriculture about how you can use food and agriculture as a lens for learning? Well, I mean, agriculture is everywhere, so it's easy to find. Once you recognize 
that it's so close to you, it's very easy to call it what it is. And it really is just about intentionally teaching it and calling it agriculture. It's very easy to find resources. Certainly, if you're interested in it all, always look at the Ag in the Classroom website. There's a whole host of lesson plans and topics that you can pick from. There are resources right out there, so close. Cornell Cooperative Extension 4-H programs provide a lot of that to is everywhere if you're just willing to look a little bit well amy we can't thank you enough for all the work you do intentionally to use food in your classroom and agriculture as that context for learning we are always impressed and amazed at your creativity and how you use the resources around you Uh, so thank (laughs) Thank you you. for being an exceptional teacher and joining us on outstanding in their field thank you so much i appreciate it and i had a lot of fun thank you I hope you enjoyed our New York and Iowa corn episode. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, visit iowaagliteracy.org. For more information on New York agriculture in the classroom, visit agclassroom.org forward slash NY. For now, thanks for listening. And stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.